0: it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software.
1: Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and... Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where Rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M, like algorithm. BlueRhythm.com. Tell them the Edifice Complex sent you there.
2: In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo.
0: Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, always an official agitator and friend and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton.
1: Say hello, Sir Yoda. Hello there. Okay, so I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be a very interesting erudite conversation, I think.
0: (laughs) Yes, and we are very fortunate today to have with us a principal research officer in NRC Construction, which is the National Research Council of Canada, our largest federal research and development organization. I say our because Adam and I are from Canada, as is our guest. Since 1992, our guest has led research into the effects of indoor environmental conditions, particularly lighting on health and behavior. She is known internationally for a model of lighting quality, which has influenced recommendations and standards in North America and Europe. And furthermore, she's demonstrated that better quality lighting can both reduce energy use and improve organizational effectiveness if it's designed. And this is what I love the best part about this with individual needs in mind. Adam, you know how much I love that. Oh, yes. (laughs) It's great to have you in the program. Welcome, Dr. Jennifer Veach. How are you doing?
3: Not too bad. Thank you.
0: Great. Did I get your pronunciation of your last name right? Perfect. Okay, great. So, Jennifer, you are a fellow of the Canadian Psychology Association, the American Psychological Association, the International Association of Applied Psychology, and the Illuminating Engineering Society. 2011, you received the Waldrum gold pin for applied illuminating engineering from the International Commission on Illumination and in 2018 received the IES Medal Award. You're a member of the Editorial Advisory Board for seven scholarly journals, including the Journal of Environmental Psychology. So we are really want to hear more about that. And among other leadership positions in both lighting and psychology communities, you currently serve the CIE as Vice President Technical and chairs, also chair of the Canadian Mirror Committee, uh, which is the ISO TC 27.4 Light and Lighting. So, Adam, and I love to have our high achievers
3: share their stories. So Jennifer, what's yours? So I'm probably the only person who is even a member of all of the different associations that I belong to. <laughs> so part of my story is that I have very niche interests and I kind of stumbled into them along the way. As it happened, I had an interior design professor for father, and although I didn't know it at the time, He actually had been involved in lighting and lighting education at a pretty high level. In fact, he was presenting at our local IES section in Winnipeg, Manitoba when I was a small child. But of course, I didn't know that. (laughs) Didn't know any of it. As it happened, I also stumbled into an intro psych course early in my university career, which was taught by an environmental psychologist. Environmental psychology is a really niche area within psychology, a very small subfield, really kind of coalesced in the 60s, partly out of response to population and environmental concerns of those days. And so there's not many of them out there. And I happened to stumble into this course taught by this guy. And he included a two-week unit, and I was hooked. Suddenly... I knew that the physical environment was important because I heard that at home a lot. But here was a way to try to understand how the physical spaces in which we spend our time, whether they're indoors or outdoors, might affect the things that we do and how we feel. And I was really jazzed by that because we're always in a place. And why would you not want to understand that? I couldn't,
0: yes, couldn't agree more yes, with that. So true. So you started out, What was it, what was your first program that you got your degree in?
3: Well, so I I actually started out in an undergraduate program in what at the University of Manitoba is called general science, because like many people, I thought I was going to go off into med school. While I was having to make that choice, I took this course and realized, A, for other reasons, I really don't want to be an MD. And wow, this is a really cool thing. I want to do this instead. So I did finish that degree, but then I did an honors degree in psychology immediately following that, because that's really the, the entry level degree you need to go into grad school in psychology in Canada. And then I went on and did a master's in psychology at Queen's in uh, Kingston, Ontario. And then I went on and, and did a doctorate, which I ultimately completed at the University of Victoria in British Columbia.
0: So, what, what city do you like better, Victoria or Winnipeg? <laughs> <laughs> you know, each
3: of them has its good points. So Um, I grew up.
0: Yeah, I I spent a few years in Winnipeg, and my fondest memory was playing hockey at minus thirty below. Now we were just young kids, and I remember coming after the first period, and none of us—we were like six, seven years old—none of us wanted to cry at that moment because our feet were frozen, right? Because we all wanted to be tough. And then we got into the second period. You could see that every once in a while, someone had a tear, but all the tears came out of all of us little boys when we started to take our skates off after the third period. (laughs) didn't matter how, you know, we all wanted to be tough, but Winnipeg just, it beat us. It beat us all. That's why they call it Winnipeg, right?
3: (laughs) They do. I have to say, I actually like Four Seasons. I spent part of my doctoral education in Southern California and actually left there for a lot of reasons, most of them financial. And one of the things I realized that I found weirdest was there's no winter there. Mm -hmm. I was wearing the same clothes in January as I was in August. And that just seemed totally unnatural to me. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. actually, given the choice, I'd probably choose Winnipeg over Victoria.
1: Oh, I like that <laughs> answer. You might be the well, first guest that's ever said that.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's interesting because when you talk to people about Winnipeg or Canada in general, and they talk about the climate conditions, say in Florida, for example. Well, Winnipeg has the same conditions, if not hotter in the summer than Florida, except it has the other extreme in the wintertime, right? So we get the extremes of northern, the North American part of the continent, but we also get the extremes in the south in Winnipeg. I think it's one of the only places in the world that has such a
3: wide diversity in climate. It does, and I've I've heard some comments from folks. I was at a presentation about the uh, Canadian Museum of Human Rights in Winnipeg when it was a construction site, and the uh, local engineer who led the team in Winnipeg was telling him the experience they had with the uh, glass suppliers from Germany, for the amazing you know shape of the TP shape of the germ of the. Museum. And when they sent the spec over, they actually got a call back from the guys in Germany saying, There's gotta be a typo on this thing. not <laughs> possibly mean that it's minus thirty five to plus uh-huh. <laughs> thirty five. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Gotcha, yeah. that's
1: a that's a great segue in terms of people don't really understand exactly how hard it is to make a resilient building in Canada, right? If you're designing for a lifespan of a twenty five to fifty year building, public building, and it's in Manitoba, that's got to take that swing of Minus forty plus forty, right? Really, that's right.
3: Yeah. It does, it does. <laughs> it has to be able to to deliver it in an energy efficient way with yeah. appropriate amounts of fresh air and all those conditions.
1: Yeah, that is not easy. So let's let's start there. So you work for the now I'm going to it's NRC, but National Research Council of Canada, right? So yeah. it's a government body, I guess. It's a it's a research institution. What, what are they researching? Are they specific to the built environment?
3: Well, so NRC itself is. Yeah the principal government R&D agency and it right. has many parts we have 14 research centers facilities from on you know one coast to the other my particular corner of it is the construction research center right. and within the construction research center we have broadly speaking three functions one of which is R&D right. we're also responsible for the technical secretariat of the national building codes so codes canada some of your readers may be familiar with. We don't write the code, but we manage the production of it. You know, technical advisors support all of the codes committees and so forth. And we also have a materials evaluation service that many people will be familiar with, the Canadian Construction Materials Centre. So that's also part of the unit that I'm in, although I personally don't work in either of those things. On the R&D side, we do research in four very broad areas, fire research civil engineering and infrastructure, building envelope and materials, which I interact with a little bit, and the part that I'm in, which is intelligent building operations. And so we have experts that conduct original research in all of those areas. And we also provide some technical services to industry in all of those areas. Some people
0: would say that intelligent building operations is an oxymoron.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we have aspirational names for it.
1: Actually, that's, uh, that's a bit of a trigger for me because my last talk, the last time I gave a big presentation at a conference was last year in Texas. And I spoke about the impact, potential impact of IoT and 5G on building automation intelligent buildings so that's an interesting area of study because i think that particular area is going to develop massively over the next generation and it's going to change the game a lot in how buildings are designed and run
3: yeah and i personally have relatively little contact on that specific topic but i do have colleagues who do and they're certainly worth listening to because they're doing some really exciting things on that topic
1: cool
0: yeah so jennifer the whole subject of ieq of which of course lighting your specialty is one and you know it fits in with, you know, the air quality, sound quality, thermal comfort quality, all of these other ones. But light and vision, as I understand it, is the dominant sensory system in the body. Someone was telling me as close to 70% of the body's receptors are assigned to vision. Is that, is that true?
3: I've heard that statistic as well. I think it probably depends on how you count things. I mean, you've got an awful lot of thermal and pain and, and pressure sensors in your skin, right. and I've never tried to count how many neurons there are. But certainly in terms of information into the body, the eyes have it.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny. Many years ago, it was probably 15 or 14 years ago, I wrote a, an article. It was called, In a Town Called Comfort, Only the Blind Can See. <laughs> <laughs> And the ethos of that article was we were trying to get people to understand the importance of the indoor environment. So we were thinking in terms of air quality, sound, thermal, vibrations, odors, this type of things. And that what we found as practitioners, both Adam and I are practicing engineers, well, no longer, we're both retired. But we were trying to get people to understand that if you let vision drive your decisions, you know, you'll get enamored with the aesthetics of the space, you know, kind of like your father. Well, interior, we should, I want to come back to interior design because they play a huge role. They, I mean, big difference between interior designers and interior decorators. And I, learned that, I, I <laughs> learned that by mistake. I was speaking at ASID in New Orleans and I got to ride from the airport with the uh, executive. And I was talking to her in, in the cab going down and I made the mistake of referring to interior decorators. <laughs> and for the next 30 minutes, I got a tongue lashing about, you know, the difference between the two. But anyways, coming back to the stimulation that the vision plays in decision-making processes and how that affects productivity. Can you
3: address that or talk to our audience
0: about the importance of that?
3: So in addition to studying lighting, I also study acoustics and ventilation and thermal comfort and how those things work together. And I've also done some work on the related issue of how you lay out or design a space, particularly office spaces. Most Mm -hmm. of my research concerns workplaces. And what we found is that All of those things work together. So one of the things we're well known for as a group, particularly I and my colleague Guy Newsham, is a model that brings together people's satisfaction with sort of lighting and daylighting, satisfaction with the privacy and acoustics aspects of the work environment, and satisfaction with ventilation and thermal comfort. And those three things are actually very highly intercorrelated. Those together contribute to what we call overall environmental satisfaction which, as you might think, is your evaluation of the whole environment you're in and how good it is. What we've also done is to link that overall environmental satisfaction to job satisfaction, and then in turn, to show that that's related to people's commitment to the organization and their intent to leave the organization. Mm. Obviously, obviously the what you want is a negative relationship, right? So people who are more committed to their organizations are less likely to leave. And of course, turnover is a big expense. So that model is really important in showing that the physical environment that people work in, all of those different elements working together actually has a measurable, not huge in terms of statistical connections, but a, a real and measurable effect on people's likelihood to stay with that organization. So if you don't get the physical environment right, you're actually going to experience poorer retention. So, separately we've also done some work on that specifically in relation to lighting and some other interesting outcomes in the in the same model
0: so i have a question for us so you mentioned earlier that you enjoy the changes in seasons and so like i've been reading quite a bit about you know the tension that's created between homeostasis and allostasis i think that's the correct yep. word Yep. Like pronunciation. So so for those that are listening, maybe you can define what homeostasis is and what allostasis is and of course the tension that exists between the two of them. And for me right now, I have a I put my faith in the neurosciences and trying to understand the levels of stress and at what point is allostasis beneficial to the occupant and at what point does it become stressful? So can maybe can you address that?
3: Well, so homeostasis is the idea that there's sort of one optimal level and you want conditions to keep you at that sort of optimal level. If one thing goes up, the other thing might go down, but on balance, you're in that same place. The idea of anesthesia is a little more adaptive. That is to say, there isn't one absolute level that you want to stay at, that in fact, your desire is going to ebb and flow because of a bunch of other factors over time. And the solution is not for the physical environment to to create that static condition, but for the physical environment to enable people to adapt the environment to the desire they have at any particular moment. Right. So it's recognizing that, so a good example is, I was thinking about the thermal example a minute ago. In the winter, where I am, of course, it's Ottawa. Today, it's quite cold outside. They tell me it's gonna get abnormally warm two days from now. But in the winter, I generally wear a couple of layers. And that's partly because maybe there isn't perfect thermal control in my building and I I know I'm going to get hot and cold during the day. But it's also about knowing that I'm going to need even more layers when I go outside when it's really cold. So my dress is adaptive to the season because I don't wear the same clothing in August when it might be 30 degrees outside. And that's when I fall into the category of the people who are not wearing as many layers in summer and don't Mm -hmm. actually want it to be as cold as some engineering assumptions might think, might program to achieve in my building.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the ways I try to understand in terms of alastasia is, is if you take a professional athlete, one of the common denominators of the professional athlete is, that are, is they have an incredible sense of balance. And they develop that sense of balance by being out of balance. So they're actually training their body to, you know, bounce back from being popped out of, out of their sort of sense of equilibrium. Mm-hmm. And I see that, you know, in terms of the sensory systems as well. And, and that when when I read the research work, the people are saying, yeah, it, it's beneficial for the body to experience being in a state of some discomfort so that it can enjoy the environment when it's back into homeostasis and that movement back and forth, that ebb and flow is beneficial for the body. but. To sort of illustrate how complex this is in, in your field is that you have both homeostasis and anesthesia within each of the sensory systems, and then you also have the integration of that. Like,
3: Yeah, but I think there's also, so there are some things that you probably want to have to adapt to. I agree with the idea that it's almost like a muscle where you need to be able to flex the muscle in order to keep it in good shape, mm-hmm. right? And that's kind of the one way to think about the the model of anesthesia. Al- there are some things that you really don't want to have to adapt to. So a good example of that would be, I don't want my workplace lighting to become so dark that I can't see, right? That's right. that's not safe and it's not productive and it's actually placing too much strain on the system during my working time or even at all. But that being said, neither is it healthy for me for that lighting to be, unfortunately as most places are that don't have windows, static all of the day because it does two things one is it's boring and that actually creates a stressor of its own because we need a certain amount of environmental stimulation in order to remain interested and alert and responsive to our surroundings and it also probably means that for at least some of the not probably it does mean that for some people that static lighting condition is not going to be the condition they need at that time because what I need is not necessarily what you need.
0: And so really, this is kind of when you look at the work that the WELL Delos group are doing Mm -hmm. and also the new building that the Rocky Mountain Institute has, which is, you know, basically they said, okay, let's build a building. We're going to baseline the environment that's actually below most people's satisfaction levels, but we're going to give them personal environmental control systems at each of their desks. Mm -hmm. And so the adaptive part of it becomes really, really important.
1: So actually... So going into it, the psychology thing comes in here. So listen to yeah. this. I mean, engineers who design buildings, you know, the whole linking of lighting, acoustic ventilation, and the IEQ thing, very few people actually, they play lip service to that, but very few people do it. But the control aspect of it fascinates me, mm-hmm. right? Because like what the Rocky Mountain Institute are doing, you know, giving you this wide band, and then within that band, giving you tools to control your personal environment, that's the holy grail, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And in fact, what Guy and I, you know, Guy Newsham and I did over many years was to demonstrate that for lighting at least, any given fixed lighting level will only really be satisfactory for at best fifty percent of the people. Wow. Yeah. Everybody else is gonna want something that's either higher or lower than that. And so that idea of a band is really valuable because if you can give people the ability to tune their local lighting to the level that they need, then you're satisfying more of the people. And in the work that we've done, we've shown that giving people that individual control triggers all kinds of good things in their evaluations of the space, their environmental satisfaction, their job satisfaction, et cetera, et cetera. In addition, this is actually exactly what I referred to a minute ago. In addition to the they reduced turnover intent, you can also see better health and well-being outcomes, including less self-reported paid time off. Yeah. So providing that personal control pays off. And what's complicated about the way buildings are built is that often that kind of effect, although it's part of the total cost of ownership of the building, it's not in the conscious awareness of the person who's outlaying the capital cost at day one. (laughs) Right. And so unless you can make someone accountable for that, then they're not going to pay the extra money to have that kind of control unless you've got someone like the Rocky Mountain Institute who gets it.
1: Yeah, so I think the only way to deal with that particular problem is the owners have to really be explicit about that want, right? So that's right. in my personal view, all problems begin and end with the owner's requirements document. You know, yeah. An owner just says, give me a lead gold building. That doesn't mean anything, right? No. Give me a lead no, gold can- building with a bandwidth, with these parameters, that's something else, right?
3: Yeah, well, and give me a lead gold building that also prioritizes the needs of my occupants. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with it. It's that. even better. Yeah, you know,
0: I had adopted a philosophy many, many years ago, and it was designed for people good buildings follow. And in our own practice, you know, when we could sit down with the owner and talk about, well, basically we sit down and it was a heart-to-heart discussion. Like, what do you actually want from this project? Like, what does this, what does this mean to you from an environmental point of view? Is this an investment property? Or is this a property you're going to hang on to? Is it something you're going to lease? That drove a lot of our discussion. And we always knew that when when the owners were educated, and a lot of our clients were actually other engineers, or they were from the medical field, and so they had a much higher level of understanding to the sciences. Mm-hmm. But Adam, in your world, as a past property developer, it was it was all about the money. It well, was never all about-, about
1: the benjamins. So <laughs> <laughs> this is where I think NRC as sort of being government adjacent. This is where I think there's a good role for government uh, as a recovering libertarian. and it kills me at service. But. um <laughs> You know, the government of Canada, for example, right? They could really change it with how they do it, right? They're not great at asking for buildings and having buildings done for them. They do tend to take what the market gives them. But if they could, with the help of of NRC maybe, like ask better and be very specific in what they ask Mm -hmm. for, and then crucially, and this is where most of them fall down, actually insist on getting it, right? Mm -hmm. Because I yep. find some clients' account, they ask for it and then they get bullied by the contractors. Oh, no, we're not doing that. And they go, okay, well, we're not doing that then. Right. But yep. if you really ask for it and enforce it, and I mean, you might have to, you know, really get nasty. And this is where mm-hmm. people don't like it. But if you do it a few times and then have these examples out there, the whole thing could sort of like get a flow will effect. Right. But this is where I think the government has a great role to play in being the example. And then mm-hmm. hopefully the private sector will follow on. What do you think about yeah. that?
3: Yeah. Well, I think you're right, but there are, in fact, a lot of forces that mitigate against that. Right. One of them being that the government does have to be really cost conscious, yes. right? Because you know that a lot of people place a lot of scrutiny on government budgets. Yes. And, well, I don't follow the press in the U.S. on this topic the same way I do for self-interested reasons in Canada, but it's pretty easy to uh, accuse public servants of having a cushy life and of, you know, having having it all too nice. And so there's definitely a tendency for government projects to not want to make it too nice Mm -hmm. because if it's too nice, then you're spending too much and really the taxpayers are, are on the hook for that and that's not okay. Yeah. So... People are very mindful of being good stewards of the public dollar. And because this whole total cost of ownership issue is really not very well understood Mm -hmm. by the public, let alone by people in the industry, it's hard to get the approval of everybody to take that route. But actually, the route that I would take that I think is a little more promising is not just for government, but is to really call out approaches like WELL, not because I love all of the provisions in WELL, but the approach generally of building certification. Similarly, I think the more we find people trying to adopt the lead kind of approach, the more that will become second nature to people who are designing and building and operating buildings. Mm. So I think there's a real role for building certification approaches I would love for government buildings to also adopt at least some of the elements of that, whether or not they actually seek formal certification is another issue. But because I think that's the way to show people the value of those things.
1: What about as sort of NRC, again, as a powerful quasi-government institution, as Secretary of Building Codes, is not the stealth way to deal with this? Do it via the code? So put things in the code and let the market solve the problem?
3: Well, so that's a really interesting question. It's really important that people understand very clearly that NRC does not determine the content of the building code. Right. Right. The Canadian Commission on Building, well, no, the Canadian Commission, there's a role for provinces, but I'll mention that in a minute. The Canadian Commission on Building and Fire Codes actually directs the process and makes the decisions about what's in the code. And members of the CCBFC are not NRC employees. In fact, I don't think we're even allowed to be members of the CCBFC. And of course, any Canadian can make a, a suggestion for a code change request, and then it has to get evaluated through the committee process. And of course, there's even more people who are on the technical committees that support the codes commission. Then, of course, there is a rule for the provinces and territories to adopt the model codes or not, and to implement local changes if they feel that there's some adaptations that are needed for their local uh, conditions. So in some respects, you might think, well, why can't NRC influence the code? Well, that's because the system has made it so that we don't drive the codes, right? because we really want it to be a, a multi-stakeholder consultative process.
0: I've been through a, a hearing trying to get The codes changed. (laughs) Yeah, for our listeners here, Adam just basically gave the symbol of putting a gun to your head. And it is, it's an incredibly difficult thing to get the body to, A, give you time because they're busy and they have so many proposals. And it's not that they don't, they don't refuse it. They can't, but they have to listen to everybody. So to get in front of them is is a task in and of itself, and then to get them to understand why you're asking for the change and get them to adopt it. If your idea is good, it's still going to take you. It's it operates under the same principles as Ashray. It takes you forever, <laughs> but I understand it, and it's. But in the process, you know, Jennifer, it has created. I always like to say, codes are minimum, but in practice, they become maximum.
3: And that is definitely a problem with the, not our code, anybody's code, or any any set of standards, right? They they do, all of those processes, I'm active, as you mentioned, in in the ISO system and in the International Commission on Illumination, the CIE, I'm active also in the the IES, and all of those systems necessarily, standards and recommendations are really conservative because you want to have strong evidence, and you do have to convince a whole lot of people before Mm -hmm. anything gets approved in your document. So
1: it's rigorous, but there's a time penalty for that, right? Is what
3: we're saying here. Exactly. And, And also because you do have to convince a lot of people and, you know, there's a lot of opinions out there and sometimes it's hard to convince enough of them. So yeah, it is a problem also, you're quite right, that standards are intended to be minimum. And the idea there is to exclude the possibility of really bad, dangerous stuff being built. And it's not intended to stop anybody from doing something better. And that's really what the building certification schemes like BREEAM and LEED and, and even WELL are really intended to do, is to encourage people to strive for better.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, there's a good example of government, and it's in the U.S., the GSA, which I think is the Government Service Agency, if I yes. get that right. Yep, Gen- right. General
3: the, Services yeah. Agency.
0: Yeah. So Adaptation. they're the largest... Right. So they're the large, from what I understand, the largest real estate holder in the United States, uh, if I'm correct on that.
3: Probably, yeah, I would expect so.
0: So they, independently of codes, you know, have done a lot of work because as one of the largest real estate holders that are also one of the largest employers in the country, productivity is really important. And so they, you know, as a government agency, have actually taken big steps on improving some of the buildings and have seen the result of that in terms of productivity and people wanting to stick around. and. I don't know where Canada stands in terms of it being an employer and a real estate holder. Does it see the benefits of stepping outside and saying, you know, we need to actually go above and beyond codes as demonstrating to the construction industry what we should be doing?
3: I would say that we're not as far along in that trajectory as the GSA is. I'm going to leave that there.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I see where you're doing that. <laughs> like that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can I, just a sidebar discussion, because I really want to know where we are at that. And I want to go back to the this homeostasis and analysis for just a second and neurosciences and understanding stress hormones. You know, cor- I think it's cortisol and epinephrine. Those are the two, two of the major stress hormones. Yeah. Do we actually know... What is a good amount of stress, and what is a bad amount of stress? Yet, I mean, there's technologies out there—the EEGs or qEEGs—that can study neural responses now to the environment.
3: Do we know, Jennifer, what's good and what's bad? Well, the long and the short answer is it's really complicated. <laughs> right. So, even doing a good study on hormones is very difficult because there are, of course, general daily patterns of hormones that happen. They rise and fall. There's huge individual differences. Cortisol in particular is complicated because it's strongly influenced by immediate events. So if you had a fight with a coworker, that could have nothing to do with your environment, Mm -hmm. right? You just had some kind of violent disagreement or you know forceful disagreement we'll say and that would influence your hormone levels so it's very hard to attribute momentary changes in any hormone level to specific environmental conditions and because individual differences are so huge we can't say you know everybody should strive to achieve a you know a cortisol level of x hmm. because that's just kind of a meaningless number so no what we can understand is how patterns of conditions influence averages of people up or down to give us that idea about, okay, what are the ranges we need to establish that are going to be good? And then I think from a practical perspective, we're much farther ahead in coming back to this idea of individual control and giving people the ability to adapt their local conditions to something that's going to work for them in that moment.
1: Actually, I want to, oh, i sorry, mm. I just want to zero in on that because uh, the, the psychology of it, a, a building manager once said to me, he said, I'm mayor of my own town and I'm a master of psyops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what he meant by that was if someone phoned up and said, I'm too hot, he'd say, don't worry, I've changed the thermostat. Then he'd phone him back half an hour later and say, everything okay, She go, yeah, that's much better. And he hasn't done a thing, right? So right. the psychology of it is really interesting to me because I I get what you're saying. The hard measurements of cortisol and stress, that's really hard, right? Mm-hmm. But giving people control, some control over their environment, I think mm-hmm. is where it's at. So, again, seeing my children enter the workforce, right? You know, mm-hmm. my daughter went to an interview, and one office was this horrible 80s cubicle farm. It was like a puppy farm. Mm-hmm. And she ran out there. There was like an Emily-shaped hole in the wall. She could not get out of there fast enough, right? <laughs> it wouldn't have <laughs> mattered what they paid her. She would not have gone into that office. Mm-hmm. so there is something to say about the psychology and the quality of the environment in terms of retention attracting young horrible i hate to say millennials you know so it's not just about the money i'm a child of the 80s i'm a child of the thatcher era right so it's all about the money for me but for my children it's not it's about the money for sure but it's also about the quality of the environment what that job is mm-hmm. like the people there all this factors in now didn't seem to factor in before. So if you're designing buildings for a level of personal control, a level of personal comfort, you know, Mm -hmm. a nice place to be, quite frankly, then Mm -hmm. as a staff retention tool, it doesn't get any better, surely.
3: I think you're right. I think, and that's where the interior design comes back in. One of the most important things I learned as a child, even about interior design was the idea of space programming. Right. And understanding user needs first and then making sure that your space is appropriately laid out and configured and accommodated for those needs. And that's partly about something that your average spec building, you know, developed (laughs) by someone who's not going to occupy it, can't do because they don't know who's going to be in it. Correct. But really what you want is a building that is not just a shell, where, in fact, the layout of the space Takes into account the specific needs of the work that people are going to be doing in it and provides for that, including such things as adjacencies. You know, mm-hmm. am I close to the people I need to be close to, mm-hmm. or do I have to walk, you know, 200 extra yards to get to the, you know, the person I most need to speak to? So taking that into account is also really important. While, and this is another thing that tends to get, a, I think, a bit of short shrift, is paying attention to the aesthetics of the space. Another part of the, you know, 80s aesthetic of, you know, gray um, paneled with maybe one accent color. salmon pink, obviously. Yeah, of course. Be. <laughs> uh, don't forget teal. Teal was very popular. <laughs> yes. too. And of course, what you really want in that particular setting is, you know, your nice deep cell parabolic louvered luminaires, because you really yeah. want to control your glare that way. Not, um, <laughs> you know, you could, one of the problems there is that, the space really was not designed seriously to look attractive. Uh. In somebody's aesthetic mind, maybe it was, but it's hard to believe even anybody ever thought that was a good way to make a space look. A certain amount of variability is really important. So I understand, for example, the needs for organizations to have some kind of accommodation standard. You know, it can't be anything goes, budgets are not unlimited. And also if you're buying a lot of stuff, you've got to figure out a way to define what it is you can buy right there are economies of scale however providing more variability so that you can tailor what's provided to the exact needs of the specific work group is critical because unless you can do that you're not going to get all of those benefits including making it a space that anybody wants to work in of whatever generation they may be
2: the edifice complex will continue in just a moment if you're enjoying this podcast we need your help we're not asking for money just a minute of your time Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time. And now, back to the show.
1: I think to your point, though, um, this is why I think you're going to see the rise of biophilic design in terms of uh, adding variability to that. But I've got to ask you this question. And The jury is out, everyone I speak to about this. So open office or closed office?
3: So I fall more on the closed office side of this. Doesn't have to be a room with a door for every individual. Yeah. But it should be not very many individuals in a room. And for some folks whose job it is to concentrate much of the time probably does mean a room with a door. Thank you.
1: Because I, I, in my office, I used to have an engineering design firm. And when I used to walk through the office, if I first saw people with headphones on. I used to think to myself, they need an office,
3: right? Yep. Yep. To my mind, if your design solution involves noise-canceling headphones, then your design has failed.
1: Thank you. I couldn't agree. And this leads to prominence, what you were saying, Robert, of interior design, right? Not decorating, yeah. design.
3: <laughs> yeah, so Jennifer
0: my the love of my life is a uh, registered interior designer and she dragged me down to NeoCon in Chicago where the big interior design show is. Mm-hmm. And my eyes were completely opened up to the incredible responsibility that interior designers have for a space and how they're really one of the unspoken heroes in the world of architecture. And that's where we met uh, that's where I met Bill Burroughs, who's the biof- one of the biophilic experts. I don't know if you know Bill or know of him. I know um, of him. But yeah. Sure and I sat in one of his presentations and I was just, I was, well, I mean, I'm getting shivers up my spine. I think going back to his presentation and just how incredibly stimulating the environments were that they were working on in terms of stimulating the, the mind and being able to relax the body so that it could concentrate and do things that it needs to do. And it was a fascinating study. So I've been down twice now and I'm going down again next year or this year coming up. And as a, as a retired and I had two licenses to practice. One was in construction engineering. The other was in mechanical engineering. So this is a completely different new field to me. But I have a huge fascination with human physiology and psychology that relates to the indoor environment. And to be go down and listen to the interior designers talk about this, I'm going, why are they not involved in every project? Why are they not leading these projects? You know, that's, that's the scale that I put them on.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I think you'd have to ask them that, although I did witness from the outside the uh, challenge of that sort of growing professions through the uh, the 70s and 80s my father was very active actually in the interior design educators council and some other professional groups so I kind of witnessed that from the outside and i think there's a lot of folks who even today don't fully understand the scope of practice mm-hmm. of a of a qualified interior designer who's uh, you know gone through the exam process so i'm not qualified to go beyond that but i i do think misunderstanding and and not a clear recognition of the value of what they bring to the project is where that comes from. And it, it relates to that same thing I mentioned earlier of people not understanding the total cost of ownership and how that the effects on the final occupants of the building really matter and are worth a little bit of upfront investment because over the life of the project, it will actually mean more success for the, the organization that occupies that space.
1: I think yeah. it's, to your point, Robert, it's trended in the right direction. Some of the bigger practices, certainly in Toronto, architectural practices, now have interior design departments within them, right? So there's a recognition yeah, there's,
0: there. So my understanding, there's only two provinces that actually have registered interior designers. Yeah, Alberta is one of them, and I think Nova Scotia or New Brunswick was one, is one of the other ones.
3: I don't think that's quite true. There are well, other provinces, but they may call them other things.
1: Yeah, I think it, Ontario has them. I've certainly seen a stamp Ontario on the drawing. Ontario yeah.
3: has them. Yeah. Actually the place you would want to look is Interior Designers of Canada, IDC, yeah. uh, which will provide that information. Yeah. But I know that Manitoba does because that was actually one of the things my father was active in, was getting legislation in that province.
0: So this these are not architects who have become interior designers. This is a no. specific field in and Different of itself, right?
3: Yeah. yeah. But yeah, to, yeah.
1: to answer your earlier question, why why are they not prominent? Because the answer is architects would rather cut their own heads off than let someone else do that job, right?
3: Well, well, that's somewhat true. And I don't think this is true now, but I know it used to be the case that architectural firms were not permitted to have owners who were not architects. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that prevented career progression, Yeah, of course, for anybody, from any other profession, engineering included. So there's a lot of that kind of professional rivalry, which I think has been somewhat of a a barrier to coming at the integrated design approaches that all of these things that we've been talking about really require. Yeah. We're trying to get somebody on from the profession. Hey, maybe, is your dad still alive? No, he's not,
0: sadly. We're certainly looking for someone who can represent that industry. I'm going to take 10 seconds here to tell our audience that that profession is like any other profession, architecture, engineering, four-year program, four years of articling, have a professional practice, ethical requirement, and they deal with things like fire exits and as, as we start to understand more about indoor environmental law we talk about choices of materials and outgas and VOCs they have a huge huge impact on human physiology and psychology so there's my 10 second blurb on for the, for the in favor of the of supporting interior designers.
1: Yeah I think you're right as the importance of the interior space becomes more recognized they will become more prominent right you know, one of the most polluted places you can be is your own home with VOCs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Who talks about that? Not many people. Now, I want to be respectful of your time, Jennifer. We're coming up on uh, 50 minutes here. So I want to be respectful of your time. Towards the end of the interviews, we normally do a few rapid fire questions. Mm-hmm. If you're okay with that? Yep. Okay. So as a father of two daughters who are in a workspace, one of them in the engineering space, I am very interested in seeing sort of high power women in places. I think you fit that bill. So have you any advice to a young woman graduating from architectural engineering school coming into the industry?
3: So I have not personally experienced any barriers to career success, although I know other people who have. Right. And I think the most important thing is to find something you really believe in and keep doing it as well as you can. And then nobody can gainsay you. And I I think that's really the key is you you do have to be really good. There's an element of the Simone de Beauvoir uh, comment about, you know, to be recognized as just as good. I actually have to be twice as good. It's still going on, yeah. but I have not seen, personally seen successful women held back.
1: Yeah, uh, do you know that's? I'm glad you said that because sort of half the the women we speak to say that and the other half say they've had problems. So it is a mixed bag out there, but it's not all bad news, right? Is no, one it's thing to not. take away, right? Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the earlier guests that we had on, I think it was Cecilia, yeah. who was from Mexico, was an engineer out of Mexico, And, you know, she said the nice thing about the sciences is that it's from an academic intellectual point of view, there's no gender barriers when it comes to science. And if you have a background in sciences, it can take you down any career path that you choose. You know, the fundamentals are there. But every one of the guests that we've had on have basically reiterated that, you know, be passionate about what you are, be really good at what you are, stand up for who you are. But I think that applies to both genders. But for the women that we've had on, it's been a real success formula for them.
3: Mm -hmm. I think also one thing that has complicated my path a little bit is when I started here, I was really the only psychologist doing the kind of work that I do in a universe of mostly engineers who had not really thought much about people in the built environment before and who at the time, now we're talking 30 years ago now, really thought that anything psychological was just kind of soft and squishy and not very scientific. (laughs) And so what I had to do was to overcome a disciplinary barrier. Any psychologist would have had that problem, Yes, not just a female psychologist. And so again, you know, do what you do really well, make sure that you're recognized in whatever your discipline is as being really good at it, and then don't let anyone say no.
1: Excellent. <laughs> Be undeniable,
3: that. right? <laughs> yeah. That's good advice yeah.
1: for anybody.
3: Did you ever study any of the work that
0: Dr. Rolls, Fred Rolls did?
3: Um, I have was- read some of his work along the way. I'm not intimately familiar with it, but uh, I am aware. He actually was, interestingly, so I'm a fellow, as you mentioned, of both APA and, and IES. He was the first person who was a fellow of both APA and ASHRAE. Oh, Okay. Um, yeah. so I feel a certain affinity for his work.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've uh, came across uh, an interview he did during his transition from working at NASA to Kansas State University. It was when Ashley had sold their laboratory or moved a la- I can't, I'm trying to remember. It was the Pierce Foundation or something like that. Anyways, they'd moved it to Kansas State, and he was asked to go work at that lab. Mm. A fascinating man. But he he basically one of those, he wrote a good article about the psychology of comfort, and he talked about, you know, we have to recognize people as human beings that have a physiology, that have a psychology, and to treat them otherwise would be to treat them as a machine, which we're not. That was basically a paraphrase of his words, and that's always stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my I'm sorry, I could talk to you forever, Jennifer. Because <laughs> I love your brain. The engineers coming out of school today, the fields of study are so diverse. And we need more people that are doing what you're doing. How do you motivate some, Or not, I mean, how do you entice or get that young mind looking at your particular niche? Because it is a specialty to come to your dark side of the world and, and join forces with you. How, do you. how do you do that? How do we get more people into your practice?
3: That's a good question that I don't fully have the answer to. And one of the things that's really surprised me is that in Canada, we don't have a specialty of architectural engineering. True. Right, Whereas we do in the states? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And yeah Penn State. If, well, Penn State being one, there's a new program being developed now at Oregon State, Texas A&M. Yeah. Uh, so there's a few different places and I have, you know, acquaintances and colleagues at all of those various schools. Oh, actually, uh, University of Nebraska at Omaha as well, has one. And that strikes me as a good entry. Now, it doesn't necessarily bring psychologists in because they're training engineers, but there's some interesting overlap there. And the more we can get people to collaborate, sort of professors to collaborate across disciplinary boundaries, the better we will be. Because one of the things I've learned through working at NRC is psychology is great and I identify as a psychologist, but it will only take you so far. You do have to understand the physics of building and the technical aspects of the building systems that you want to influence. And a psychology degree is not going to give you that. So the ability to understand whatever the appropriate part is, in my case, I need to understand light and physics, is really critical. And that's where some little more university-level collaboration that brings people together would really be helpful in providing a means for professors to then turn around and, and excite their own students.
1: Yeah, so that's a great point. The word excites students, the words mm-hmm. excite students. That's where I think universities and colleges fail a little bit. They don't necessarily excite them. It, it's basically a survival course. It's like going through buds for any, <laughs> you know, it's like being, trying to be a Navy SEAL. You go through hell week, but it lasts four years at university, right? In the engineering. it's. I don't think universities and colleges do a great job of getting people excited about what they're doing and the impact they're going to have on society and how big and awesome their career could be, right? There's got to be a way to chess that up a bit.
3: So I do think that co-op education is a good way to go with that. Yeah. You know, we bring in more students. For a few years, we weren't bringing so many students into NRC. Now we have a, quite a lot of students coming every year. And that's a really important way to give people a sense of the different things that they can influence. Yeah. Yeah. It's a challenge in a way because you have someone for only four months. It's hard to give them a sense of how big and important something can be because you can only see so much in four months. Yeah. But we have found that that's been one good route for people to get sufficiently excited to go off and do other related things in the future. A couple of comments
0: here and then a question. And one of them, we're trying to get uh, Dr. Stephanie Taylor on. I don't know if you know uh, Dr. Taylor, but she was a medical doctor that went and got her master's degree in architecture. So right there, and this is where we're leading up to my question, that is, is that, you know, you have the health sciences and then you have sort of the building sciences. And at one time, Canada had a conference that brought these two areas of study together. There hasn't been one in a number of years. So Dr. Beach, when are we going to have another conference bringing these two areas together?
3: A specifically Canadian one? Yeah. Well, that would be a really great idea. We actually had a small workshop on that type and that sort of topic in 2008, which was really exciting and wonderful and produced a proceedings volume that was available online. I think it still is through the NRC website. For a variety of reasons, the initiative that we tried to push, which was to build together the building sciences and health sciences, didn't really take off at that time. So I think it's it's time for another one.
1: I
0: agree. Whether
3: I'm the one that's going to do that, I'm not not making
1: any predictions. <laughs> well, I'll volunteer to be a cheerleader.
0: <laughs> it's a big task, but we've come a long ways in 10, 15 years. Yeah. The knowledge that we have and I think it's time now to bring those in both in both areas of the sciences. Yeah. Hmm. It's, I think it is time to, and yeah, if, if uh keep us if that happens, you know, we'd like to know about it obviously and we'd be happy to promote that conference as well sure, for our show.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Jennifer, thank you very much for coming on. Again, I could talk to you forever, actually. There's such a lot going on there. But well, thank yeah. you very much for your time and yeah. uh, really appreciate it. You're welcome.
0: Adam, that was an awesome interview. They're all awesome. But, uh, you know, Because I have a passion, as you do, for the buildings and architecture and the sciences, having someone like Jennifer come on, who brings with her an incredible backup, I mean, having a father who was a professor in interior design, right there, set the stage for her, you know, one one of her appreciations for the built environment. And for her to tie that in with psychology is a huge, it's such an interesting niche, and, you know, when we look back, so I just say we're 40 years in the future or 50 years in the future, we'll look at the work that Jennifer has done and her colleagues and seeing how they actually influenced architecture and in for the better.
1: Yeah, the, the psychology aspect is really like the ninja skill there, right? So, yeah. you know, the the loss of baby boomers retiring, the skill losses that are going out of in the industry, the ability to attract good people is going to become a key determinant in being successful or not, right? Part of that attraction is going to be environments where people want to work. There's a reason Google has slides and ball pits and, you know, and massages there, right? Because yeah. it's a way of attracting hard-to-get talent. And that philosophy is going to spill down everywhere. You know, if you're running an architectural firm and you've got a choice of employers and one of them's got a horrible, hideous, eighteen Salmon pick office and one's got a nice modern office, you know, yeah. where are you going to go? <laughs> absolutely. So, and and it's a big field. I
0: mean, you think about, and you know, like her her area of sound, well, lighting primarily, but sound and the psychology of that. But then you throw in all of the other sensory systems and what we're learning from a psychological point of view, but also a physiological point of view. And it just, it illustrates how complex it is, mm. but it also is an incredibly fascinating study. And I got, you know, if there's anybody that's listening that is in, you know, engineering or planning to go into engineering, you know, we're talking about adjacent education, Marcel Harmon, you know, who has a yeah. PhD, but he has his three degrees came from different fields. Boy, you know, an engineer with a psychology degree. Wow.
1: Yeah, he's a really interesting dude because of the way, so he, life's a Venn diagram for me, right? And that guy's yeah. Venn diagram is pretty awesome. I said with yeah. Jennifer's, right? So you overlap yeah, totally. these things and, you know, there is just a unique skill stack there that yeah, hopefully leads to insight and change, right? Yeah. You know, the days yeah. of just being uh, a monotone, single skill person, I ha- again, are falling away, you know? 30 years ago, when you and I started, it was great to be a mechanical engineer. You could stay in that lane and have a great time, and everything was good. But as complexities come on and other things are hidden, you know, it's not enough anymore. No. That becomes a foundational skill, and then you have to add on other skills to that.
0: Yeah. I got to think we got got to try to get somebody on from TransSolar because TransSolar in many ways represent the practitioner level of, yep. the, of the Dr. Veaches of the world, you know, yep. or the Fred Rolls of the world, you know, where there's all of this building health sciences in their brains, but it's sitting there, you know, in an institute. Yes. Where the folks like Trans Solar are, are up to some degree, you know, have an appreciation for the two worlds and bringing them together. But we should try to get something from Trans Solar in.
1: I'm up for that. Well, one thing I am going to borrow is what you said in there. Codes are minimum but become the maximum. I do like that.
0: Yeah, maximum in practice. And yeah. uh, it's, uh, it's it hurts us. It was nice actually to have Jennifer's voice on the code because I didn't realize that NRC was so detached. No, nor me. I from they the doc. Yeah. Yeah. That was so that real, was nice interesting. Yeah. Nice clarity on that. And and I definitely appreciate what it takes to try to get something changed in the code because having gone through that experience and sitting in front of that committee standing up to present a proposal for change, it's yeah, it's an it's an intimidating experience and it can be frustrating because you you know as we believed that we had something there that was useful for the codes. They rejected it the first go-around, but subsequently adopted it in part six. And then through just continuing working, we got it into part nine. So now the document sits in both six and nine. But that took, oh, my God, probably 12, 16 years. It was a long time, you know?
1: Someone said to me in America, American engineer said, code tends to lag the industry generally by 10 years. Yeah, I would agree with that. And And that sounds right, right? Building code is one of the things that's great. And it serves a certainly a, a worthy purpose of making sure things are safe. Mm. But it also has an unintended consequence of inhibiting change and innovation, I think. Right? Because it's yeah. meant everyone conceived it. This is the minimum, don't kill people, make it nice, right? No one's gonna die here. And that's yeah. great. But it also became that's the bare minimum, dude. I am gonna chisel this down to that. And yeah. that wasn't his intention.
0: No. <laughs> right? So and, and and so it brings up the question. You know, why people, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stereotype somebody or, or uh, people here, and it's not deliberately, it's just to okay. give them an example that why really well-educated, wealthy individuals, I'm not saying the two are go hand in hand, but someone who is building a, a house or a home, a retirement home, for example, who has an education, who yeah. has the money, will hand over a blank check to somebody to build a house, and it could be several millions of dollars. And the environmental systems, the lighting systems, the HVAC systems in some of these buildings could easily represent three, four, $500,000. That same individual, if they're going to spend four or $500,000 on say plastic surgery, or a boat, or a Ferrari, or go towards an airplane, that person will research that
1: to death. Yeah. And they'll be quoting the specs of that Ferrari to their buddies. Absolutely. Drunk,
0: right? <laughs> Absolutely. Right. But when it comes to their indoor environment, it's like they get well, stupid. You know, it's like they don't want to see it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to talk about it. They're going to give it up to the builder who never actually lives in the building ever. He just builds it and then walks away from it and he leaves behind this indoor environment with this educated person who had the money and the knowledge to research and get something that was good for him and yet they don't do it. It's Absolutely. the most b- why. bizarre
1: thing. Here's why. Because the Ferrari is a signal of status. Mm. right? Polish floors and radiant heating and displacement ventilation. If I walk in someone's house they got that. I know they're a baller but that's a small group who know that's a baller thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> Explain to our audience what a bowler is because most so a baller are, is uh is someone who is just when you're balling out of control, you're just crushing it everywhere. You got money. If you're a man, women are falling at your feet, you're driving a great car, you're living a great life, you are just out there, right? Yeah. You're balling.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah, when it comes to some things like that, they're like, they're no different than the uneducated person who doesn't have the wherewithal to buy good environments. Yeah. That's it, yeah. the most bizarre thing in the world. You know, and I guess going back to my comment in the interview, where I said, you know, we most of our clients were other engineers or people from the health sciences. Yeah, and they get it, but that was a small amount of people that do that. And it's if they only knew, you know, the the results that the Jennifers of the world or the Ed Ahrens of the world or the Bill Ballfils or the Bernie Olson, the people that we've had on specialized indoor environments, if they only knew what these people knew or know, they would fire half
1: of the builders that they work
0: with and say, you know. The
1: challenge is to make it a way, make it braggable, make it a, a status signal that you've done mm. this. How you, because the problem is all this is embedded technology in your house, right? So it's very hard to make it a status signal or a value, mm. or a high value signal. Somehow the industry has got to find a way to let people brag about it. Yeah. Right. And I think
0: one of the, and I totally agree with you on that. And I think one of the other challenges is that consumers in the home buying market, have been led to believe through the process that the tradesperson is also the engineer. Mm and when that is not the case at all we, you know people need to understand that what trades people learn is how to put things together so that it's in compliance with the code but they're never taught the why yeah. and so understanding why we do things like lighting analysis and thermal comfort analysis and sound analysis these environmental analysis is not part of the trades that's part of the engineering profession which doesn't often become part of the building profession in the house building segment yeah. so they go to buy a house the builder says well our contractor our mechanical contractor he'll put together a heating ventilation and air conditioning system and the person goes okay yeah. not understanding that you know there's a different so i go back to the, the, the word carpenter the carpenter is a big word because you can be a finishing carpenter you can be a framing carpenter and you can be a cribber yes right i was a cribber and i was a framer i would not hire me to be a finishing carpenter because i suck as a finishing <laughs> carpenter Right. But yeah. when people say the word carpenter, they think, OK, well, you can do all of those things. Yeah, that's right. And that's what happens to the trades. When they say you are a, you're a mechanical contractor, the person, the consumer thinks, OK, well, you can do engineering work and you can do all the design work. But that's not the case. People need to understand that.
1: So this is basically a problem for the Don Drapers of the world, right? They Madison Avenue, the advertising industry somehow need to work or our industry needs to work with them to somehow make it a virtue. Or a, a signal of high status that you've done these things, that mm. you have an efficient building. This is the genius of Lead, if you like. Right? I'm just using Lead as one of 600 certifications out there. Right? It's
0: it, Jerry, thank you for that stat, yeah, by the way. Yeah, yeah.
1: Like I, I spit out all the time. People go, yeah. "What?" <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Lead gives you the ability to boast about this hidden feature, right? Mm. Yeah, you know, I have a, a lead Platinum building. People don't know what that means, but they know Platinum sounds great, and obviously not many people have it, so therefore it's a high-status thing, right? Right. And yeah. that's its genius. That is its real genius. Again, it's my love-hate relationship. The genius is it makes property developers aspire to be better and go above code, right? I just have issues with how it's implemented, but the genius of it is that. Yeah. And for that, it's worth it, I guess, right?
0: Yeah. And I think where well fits into the lead family i guess it is hmm. you know is that it elevates that importance of that indoor environmental segment yes you know because lead was so much about i mean it had a it had a component of air quality and thermal comfort i mean they made reference to ASHRAE 62.1 and 55 but in many in many cases the certification was just a matter of the engineers filling out check boxes. Yep. You yeah you know there was never actually any analysis done or not to the extent that the standards encourage you to no. do. You know?
1: As someone told me once, I heard this USGBC presentation. The original, the 2009 version of LEED was about setting intentions. Mm. And then the new version four, which is harder and less taken up consequently, is about actually following through on them intentions. Ergo, a lot of people are going, you know what? I think I'm <laughs> out. Because <laughs> accountability hurts sometimes, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because now you have to actually do some.
1: Number crunching, yeah, and provide a little bit more evidence. So, I don't know. It's we live in we live in interesting and great times, but there's a long way to go, which is why if you're young and come to this business, there's a lot to do. So, come in and do it because yeah. there's a lot of work to do, there's a lot of things to pull together. It's a great time to come into this business. So, I'm, I'm as I'm getting near retirement and getting older, I get a little bit jealous that I see young people starting their careers because there's so much in front, right? There's so much to totally. do, yeah, yeah. It's
0: yeah. nuts, man. Well, and those <laughs> doors have been opened up by people like you know Dr. Beach. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the, all of those people that are doing that work is opening those doors for those young minds to come in and continue on their work and make a difference. Yeah, so I'm about- with you. I'm with you. I'm. Yeah. I if I could only go back we can't yeah. but if i could i would be just yeah. as enthusiastic as i am today that, you know yeah if i was starting again yeah okay
1: so to wrap this up in a way mm. and a nod to to our last guest is there's a lot to do here and if you're a mechanical electrical architectural even with a psychological degree or an interior design degree there's a yeah. lot to do these all these disciplines are merging. There's going to be interplay between them, interconnections between them. There's going to be exchange of knowledge between them. It is a great time to be alive and be in the built environment business So come on in. Make the change. All right.
0: Nice words to close this interview down, Adam. Always a pleasure. Loved it.
2: See you on the next one. All right. Take care. Cheers. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.
0: Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software. Blue Rhythm Commissioning
1: Software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality... It's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will... Digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where Rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M like algorithm. bluerhythm.com. Tell them the Edifice Complex sent you there.